0: For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent." Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord.
1: And we give you thanks that you uh, deliver uh, what we need. You give us everything we need and more. Jesus described it as abundant life. So we pray that we would find that as we receive your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, what if the world is not the way that it appears that it is? You may recall uh, the movie The Matrix. That was sort of the premise, is that Neo, the main character runs into Morpheus, who basically offers him this red pill that's gonna give him the truth about reality. Right? And the world is not the way it appears it is. That's 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 the point. What Jesus has been doing in this gospel is telling us, he's given us a red pill, a truth pill that's telling us what the world is really like. Okay now you'll recall last week Jesus healed a paraplegic uh, who's sitting by the poolside, 38 years, he had this condition, he was in a desperate state, and Jesus heals him, and he heals him on the Sabbath, which creates anger on the part of the Jewish leaders, because it was done on the Sabbath. And so what we have this morning is a continuation of a dialogue that began last week uh, on, between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. And you'll, you'll recall that in verse 16 if you got your bibles you can look it says they were persecuting him now the word used to describe persecuting him connotes the idea that, that they were they were building their case against him they were in a systematic way prosecuting him which is ironic right because he's given life on the sabbath they're upset that he's working on the sabbath and they're doing the heart heavy lifting of pros- uh, creating a prosecution against somebody on the Sabbath. The irony, right? And so this dialogue is continuing here. And what's going to happen over the course of these verses that we've just read is Jesus is going to turn the tables, and he's going to put the prosecution on the defense. And in the process, he's going to give us that red pill. He's going to give us a truth about surprising heavenly realities. Not things that we would expect. Things that are surprising. Things that are true in heaven. And and, and also they work their way with the incarnation of Christ. They too come down to earth. And what is true in heaven is is true in the way of the earth. As these two things, heaven and earth, are going to be united. Okay? Jesus has, has pulled heaven down with Him. And he's teaching us what life is like in heaven, how, how the world really operates. Okay, and we're going to get some three, three, three things that he's going to tell us, three realities. The first is this. It's not about unity. It's about equality. I mean, I'm sorry. I said that totally wrong. Sorry. It's not about equality. It's about unity. It's not about equality. It's about unity. Okay, that's the first thing. second thing is love is the driver. Love is the driver of everything. The third thing is, glory appears upside down. Glory appears upside down. So the first thing, uh, it's, it's not about equality. It's about unity. Now, American culture is obsessed with equality. We, we, we enshrine equality as like the most important thing. And equality is good. It's it's a good. uh, When people are treated equally, that's a wonderful thing. And when people, when there's inequity in the world, racial, social, between the sexes, that's bad. There's been a lot of physical, emotional, psychological harm done to groups of people because of inequality. But, Equality is not the end-all, be-all. Jesus tells us there's a consideration more important than equality. And it's unity. That's what matters. Look, look okay, so if you have your Bibles, because this verse isn't printed in your text, but verse 18, the verse just preceding what's what you have in your order of worship, the charge... That the Jewish leaders are bringing against Christ is one of equality. That Jesus is claiming to be equal with God. That's the charge. And Jesus, he sidesteps that question altogether as though it's irrelevant. He begins to look at verse 19. He says, I, he, he, he starts talking about unity. Verse 19 I'm one with the Father, I'm one with God. We work in accord. We're like a school of fish that just move in tandem. We're we're united. In fact, as Paul tells us in Philippians, the very reason Jesus is doing what he's doing is because he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He voluntarily became unequal with God. Now, Jesus is God. I'm not not saying that Jesus is not God. He's God. But Jesus is saying the primary thing that you need to be concerned about, the primary thing that I'm concerned about is unity. Unity is fundamental. Now, equality, like I said, very American idea, very American concept. But it's not a biblical concept. Okay. Hear me out on this. Here's the problem with equality as a driving principle. Leslie Newbigin has, has a wonderful quote. I've quoted him a lot lately, but here's what he says. Equality leads to independence. Equal people don't lean into one another, but they stand apart. They stand on their own two feet. I don't need you because I'm an equal with you. Therefore, I'm independent from you. We have this word that, that we, we, we use. This is kind of a dirty word in our, in our vernacular. It's paternalism, right? This idea of a father kind of bearing down, a father figure in your life, bearing down, restricting your freedom, telling you what you can and cannot do. It's paternalistic. It's paternalism. Look at how Jesus describes his relationship with the father. Whatever the father does, this is verses 19 and following, Whatever the Father does, I do. The Father raises the dead, gives life. I raise the dead, I give life. We operate in one accord. We're united. Now, Newbegin again says our idea of human dignity that is defined by equality is the very lie that the serpent used to tempt Eve. Independence from God. Knowledge that would place her on an equal playing field with God. Equality with God is what the serpent was offering Eve. To be like God. To be equal with him. Not to be united. Now, let's think about it as it relates to our own relationships. Unity. What if unity was the driver in how we relate it to our neighbor, for example? Right? If equality is the driver, our neighbor paints their house and we're like, well, I guess we've got to paint our house. Neighbor pulls down the street with a brand new car. Equality thinks like this oh, we should get a new car too. Uh, you know, it, neighbor has a big party. Well, we should have a party too. we gotta, we got to be nice to our neighbors. But if unity is the driver, we're not thinking in those terms. We're thinking about what it is we can do to help bring unity between us and our neighbor. As it relates to spouses, if equality is the equation, if that's the calculation, then if your husband did your dishes last night, then it's my turn to do the dishes. But they're going to be doing it the next night. It's very calculating. You've got to keep everything in order, keep things equal. Unity doesn't calculate that way. It's thinking, how can I bring unity to this relationship? As it relates to parents, kids, when you're thinking about equality, if your parents don't let you have dessert at dinnertime for whatever reason, then, then, then the equality equation thinks, okay, tit for tat, I'm going to resist bedtime tonight. But that's not unity. That doesn't bring unity. Unity is a, is a fundamentally different calculation than that of equality. I mean, as it relates to relationships in the church, equality tempts us to throw other people under the bus in order to give us a little social capital and give us a little little equality within the social ranks. And by equality, we're always thinking in terms of the best, right? The most social person or the funniest person or the You know, smartest person or whatever it is, I got to be equal to those people in all these different arenas. We might even be tempted to gossip, right? To the extent that it gives us a little, a little sense of, of 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 equality socially speaking, throw somebody else under the bus. The problem with the priority of equality is that contained within that desire for equality our seeds. And the seeds are jealousy, envy, covetousness, pride. Those all lurk in the, in the soil of equality. Like I see, like you're, get, you're doing the exact same job as I am, and you're getting paid more. When we're, when we're allowing equality to drive how we relate to others, it puts us in, a, in an adversarial relationship with our neighbor. Because we're calculating, we're counting, we're keeping score between us and our neighbor. The call of the church is to be marked by unity. The Christian faith says equality is for the birds. It's all about unity. Think, of Paul, Paul gives us the, the image of the body, right? The church is the body. And Paul's point there is to say that the, way, the reason the body works is because it's unified. It's not equal. It's not. Now, equal in value? Yes, there is equality in how all of us are loved and valued by God. But equality in function? No, in fact, the whole body works is because it's not equal in function. If, if, if every piece of my body was a thumb, I wouldn't work very well, would I? I wouldn't be able to speak. I wouldn't be able to walk. I'd just be a bunch of thumbs sticking out of a stump of my body. That's what Paul's logic is. Like, the whole reason the body works is because there's variety, there's diversity, but unity. And that's what the Christian call is to unite, to be, to be united. And that our calculation is how can we further unite ourselves to one another and to Christ? Now, you may think, okay, well, wait a second, this all sounds fine. But if unity is the driving force, how do I keep from being trampled? I'm just gonna get trampled. If I don't keep score, then I'm gonna be doing dishes every night. I'm gonna get, I'm never gonna get a raise. How does it work? Well, this brings us to our second point. The thing, and this is this love is the driver. Okay, that's the second point. Love is the driver. Love has to be underneath unity. If love is present, you don't get trampled. You flourish as a human. Look at, what, look at how Jesus grounds the unity of himself with God. Look at verse 20. The grounds is this. For the Father loves the Son... Jesus is doing what he's doing out of the security of the love of the Father. He's not doing it to get, to secure the Father's love, right? He's doing it out of the Father's love. And that's how it must work. And, you know, the same is true for us as well. Our obedience to the Father, our striving for unity, must be out of the security of God's love not in an effort to secure God's love you see the difference in one instance we're we're, we're trying to get God's love through our good works and that leads to anxiety stress difficulty you could think of it like a tryout have you guys ever tried out for anything it's kind of a petrifying experience every move you make is being scrutinized watched with care He's kind of fumble the thing around. Oh my gosh! They're watching me. You're doing you're, your work is to get the love and approval of the coach or the whoever, the teacher, whoever it is. that's doing the tryout. Every other religion operates like that. That you obey in order to get the love of God or the gods or to get the love of of a person or whatever it is Every other approach to life is that approach, a tryout approach. But Christianity is unique. It works the other way around. We get God, we get his love, and then our obedience flows out of the love of the Father, just as Christ does, so that we can rest in the security of God's love. This is so important for understanding the nature of life. When we talked about creation, we, we said that other creation stories, so many other creation stories begin with like some cataclysmic event, like war, a war of the gods. This is what the Babylonians believe. A war of the gods is what gave rise to this. And the, the blood of the slain god seeded the earth and out pops creation. Even our own creation myth, our culture's own creation, Darwinian evolution, right? It's war. It's survival of the fittest. And as these forces of nature battle it out, the strongest rise to the top. And that's how we're here. That's what it's all about. War is the bottom line. But Christianity has a fundamentally different orientation to the creation. What gave rise to creation? Love. Love. What was the impetus behind Christ and his arrival, the author of life's arrival in the world? It was love. What's what's our way of orienting in the world? It's love. It's to be loving. But it flows out of the love of the Father for us in Christ. Okay, this is the third point. His glory appears upside down. His glory appears upside down. So, Jesus is turning the tables on this. Remember, they're prosecuting him. He's defending, and then he begins to prosecute them. Verses 30 and following is where we see him bring his prosecution. And what does he say? He says, I've given you, 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 have, you have received witnesses. Moses was a witness to you of, the way, of these secret heavenly realities. Moses gave witness to these things. God gave witness to these things. My own signs have given witness to these things. John the Baptist gave witness to these things. It's like you're driving down, Jewish leaders, it's like you're driving down the highway, the interstate, you see one billboard after another. Jesus, Jesus, exit here, Jesus, Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And they drive right past the exit. Totally missed it. So Jesus said, how could you miss it? How could they, how, how could they, they've spent their whole lives studying God's witness to humanity, and Jesus tells them, it's all about me. He's staring them straight in the eyes, and they missed it. They missed it big time. How do they miss it? Well, verse 44, Jesus tells us, how can you believe, he says, when you receive glory from one another? He says, this is what you're all about, is getting glory for yourself. You're so bent on yourselves that you can't see past your own nose. You can't see what's right in front of you, what you've been called to point to, to give witness to yourselves as students of the scriptures. Your orientation is away from God and on man, yourselves and one another. And that's the problem. And we see this so many times. How many times in in human history, or even in our own experience, does some charismatic Joe Blow come up onto the stage and we just flock to the person, thinking that there is wisdom and salvation and all the things we long to to be found in in this man. Over and over again, this happens. God sent his prophets, Remember the history of Israel? God sends his prophets, and what do they do? At best, the prophets of God are ignored, and at worst, they're put to death, right? Now, what about the false prophets? Oh, boy, the people flock. They love it. They can't, they're just tickle in their ears, and the people can't get enough of the false prophets. They're enthroned. I mean, think about nations. Think about how many examples of leaders within nations that are just full, glory-hungry fools that walk up onto the stage and they're just gobbling up as much glory as they can. And the people just give it to them, just like, let them have it. They want it. Let's give them, give them the glory. This is what we do. Jesus says, it's what you've done. You, 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 You can't get enough glory from one another. It's all you're about. And you've missed the glory of God, which is standing right in front of you. And notice the sharp contrast, okay? This is, this is why glory appears upside down. Verse 41, look at what Jesus says. I don't receive glory from people. I'm fundamentally opposed, opposite, on the other end of the spectrum of everyone that you like to exalt. I don't need the glory from people. I don't seek it. Martin Lloyd-Jones has said that the history of the human race is this. Over and over again, humanity puts truth on the scaffold and wrong on the throne. Over and over again, we put truth on the scaffold and wrong on the throne. And this, the arrival of Christ is, is, is an incredible example of that playing out. Right? We're not neutral to Jesus Sinful humanity is opposed to Jesus. We hate him. I mean, think about this. If given the choice to live with the author and creator of life, who poured himself out, who is life, who's truth, who demonstrated so much generosity and power, who lived his whole life for others, If given the choice between that person and let's not, not just a marginal person, but like a menace to society. Let's say, and given the choice between life and a murderer, between a generous, the most generous person that's ever walked the face of the earth, and a thief, who do we choose? Remember who the crowds chose? They chose Barabbas. That was the choice, right? Between the author of life and a murderer. And we want death. We choose death. We put life on, we put life to death, and we choose the murderer, the thief, the one who takes. This is what this is what sinful humanity. We talked about the blindness of sin. This is what it does. It blinds us. So these are the surprising heavenly mysteries. The economy of heaven is very different than the economy of earth. In heaven, unity is sought, and it leads to holy dependence upon one another. And on earth, equality is sought, which leads to independence. Um, and in heaven, activity come, our, our activity, our lives, flow out of the security of God's love for us. In earth, our activity flows out of a desire to acquire, to secure God's love or the love of others. It's more like a tryout, right? And there's anxiety and we're on edge and there's difficulty associated with that. In heaven, glory is pouring your life out for another. On earth, glory is pouring your life into your own life, into your own self. And this is what the red pill teaches. This is is how the world really is. This is what Jesus is showing us. It flips the world's economy on its head. And what Jesus is providing is not just a suggestion for living your best life now. That there's like a lot, you know, there's all these lifestyle options for you to choose. And Jesus is kind of offering one life among many valid options for, for how to live your life. And you'd be wise to choose that one, but there's other options available. Now Jesus, in this passage, Jesus calls himself the son of man. It's a, it's a phrase from Daniel, the book of Daniel. It's not used very much. In fact, this is, I believe this is the first time it's used in this gospel. And what he means by that is he's saying, look, I am the son of man. I am the only way for humanity to live. If you want to know what, how, to, how to have life, how to have the most rich life, you're looking at it right here. This is what life is like. And if you come to me, you receive that life. I share it with you it flows out of me so this is the heartbeat of the universe and here's the grand surprise because we know how this ends right jesus is pouring himself out and yet he it all ends in anger and death for him but listen to what paul says paul summarizes this so well in ephesians chapter 2 this whole God, the secret heavenly or surprising heavenly realities, it's summarized in Philippians chapter two. Paul says there, it's a familiar verse, um, passage. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what did he do? He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, and not just any death, death on a cross. That was his will. That's what the will of the Father directed Jesus to do. And he did it. He was in one accord with the Father. He was doing the will of the Father. But here's the thing. What appeared to be his moment of shame and destruction was actually his moment of, of, of power and victory. What appeared to be his emptying was actually the, the beginning of his filling up and exaltation. Because Paul continues, look, listen to what he says. As a result of that humility, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, this is the surprising heavenly reality. We we never would have guessed this. We never would have guessed this. That this is how it all went down that his humbling and that horrible death on the cross was the means, and his resurrection was the means by which he was raised to life and exalted to the right hand of the Father. And our lives are to follow a similar pattern, taking up our crosses and walking so that in a walk of humility, striving for unity with the church, with our neighbor, we will experience that same exaltation and be raised Raised to Christ to rule and reign over all things with him, united to him. Completing his rule and reign. It's an incredible promise. It's an incredible promise. It's an incredible thing that we're a part of. Now, it all must be rooted in this love of Christ. And, you know, we'll close with this. Um, There's a lot of nihilism in our culture, the belief that there is no purpose, that there is no meaning. I, I was listening to a podcast recently talking about youth, um, like teenage-aged kids, teenagers, and what this person was saying, you study teenagers, is the incredible percentage of kids that believe that life has no meaning and their lives have no meaning. It's like off the charts high. And it's, it's not shocking that that would be the case, because that's sort of the world we've kind of inherited as a culture, but Christianity says something very different. It says the world has a purpose, and it's a surprising purpose. Sally Lloyd-Jones, they're, they're her little Jesus storybook Bible, which many of you are probably familiar with, they're reading it in the nursery, so I thought I'd read it here. Um, this, this, this is what Sally Lloyd-Jones, I think, accurately describes the world to be like. You ready? This is what the Bible tells us. This is chapter one of that Jesus storybook Bible. She says, some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Pharisees, for example. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about what it's about God and what he has done. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules. It's a story, an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything, to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. And we come to Christ, and we get swept up into this cascade of love that exists, that has existed from all eternity within the triune God. Jesus is a part of, that Jesus is operating out of. We get swept up into that, into that love. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for your generosity towards us, your love towards us, for you so loved the world that you sent Jesus. And in the face of uh, with people rejecting and and being hostile towards him, he still uh, pursued the path laid before him by you. He still did the will of the Father. We give you thanks that 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 will was for our good. We give you thanks that your Spirit has awakened us to these truths. Because if your Spirit doesn't come to us, we're the, we're we're saying we want Barabbas, we want Barabbas, we don't want you. But you've opened our eyes to the glory of of Jesus. Would you continue to do so? Continue to. Um, Penetrate our heart, destroying any pockets of resistance to you that we may have lingering. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.